Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that today we are here. We are excited. We are thankful. We love being with our sisters in Christ. We love the opportunity to hear the word of God. Still our minds and our hearts at this very moment that nothing else is there but you. And may we bring you glory by what we hear and may it become a part of us to the point where it changes us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you open to Genesis chapter 4? Genesis chapter 4. I want to read a couple verses from Hebrews. You don't have to go there if you want to listen. But if you also want to put a finger or... i actually going to start out with Hebrews 11. So just go to... You know, Hebrews 11 is the Hall of Faith chapter of the Scripture. So if you'd look at Hebrews 11:4, and while you're going there, let me ask you, what did Adam and Eve do after the fall? They raised Cain. As long as they were able. You're all writing that down, aren't you? <laughs> all right, Hebrews 4:11. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. That's where I got the title for our lesson, A More Excellent Sacrifice. By which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Who was righteous? Abel was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he... Abel, being dead, yet speaketh. Now go to Hebrews 12, one page over, and look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So what we see right away is that Abel presented a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, but who presented a more excellent sacrifice than Abel? Christ. Okay, now go to Genesis chapter 4. I wish I could read it, but I think you all know the account of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapters 4 and 5, we read about the descendants of Adam and Eve branching into the two predicted sides of the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that God had predicted in Genesis 3.15. Cain, the firstborn son, pictures the natural man who is the spiritual seed of Satan, whether he realizes it or not. We are all born into this world as the seed of the serpent, natural man. He was the first human who was born after the fall. So he was the first human, first one to be born with a belly button. That isn't really what I was going to say. He was the first human who was born with the sin nature, the Adamic sin nature, which he inherited from his father. He was born of the flesh. And in the typological sense, all that unredeemed humanity can produce was represented by Cain who was of that wicked one. That's what it tells us in 1 John 3, 12. Cain was of the wicked one, Satan. On the other hand, Abel, the second-born son, in the book of Genesis, second-born sons represent 
the second birth son. How important this, you know, must be born again. Uh, He was the second born son. He represents the spiritual man or the godly line of mankind, the woman's seed. Christ referred to him as righteous Abel in Matthew 23. Christ himself called Abel righteous. He's also called righteous in 1 John 3.12 and again in Hebrews 11.4. We just read that. So three times we are told that Abel was righteous. So each brother, we could say, represents a gospel. Cain represents the false gospel of, of Satan, which is essentially salvation by works. We'll talk about that this morning. Whereas Abel represents the true gospel of Christ, which is salvation by what? Faith. Salvation by faith and faith alone. Nothing added. Well, Adam and Eve initially, it says in verse 1 that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Initially, she thought, and so did apparently Adam, who probably named the child, she might have suggested the name, but he, he agreed. Um, but they believed that Cain was the fulfillment of God's promised Savior. They must have rejoiced as they held that little infant son in their arms because they thought he was the one who was going to restore them and earth to perfection and end the sentence of death over them. Bible scholars believe that this was indeed their thinking because of the name that they gave to Cain. In Hebrew, his name means got, uh, got, G-O-T, got, or acquired, acquired. Eve specifically said that she had gotten a man. Notice she says a man, not a son. She got a man, and in your notes, I'll get into all the details. I'm not going to take the time here, but most Bible scholars, the Jewish Targums, Augustine, Martin Luther, they all believe that the literal translation is, that she said, I have acquired or gotten a man, even the Lord, Yahweh. Her theology was terrific. I mean, she thought that the promised Savior was a man who was Yahweh. <laughs> right on the mark. Except for the fact she got the wrong one. It wasn't Cain at all. She was wrong about Cain for two reasons. Number one, he was conceived through the natural process of reproduction by the seed of his father, not in the biological sense, by the seed of the woman. I don't think they had biology class, so they didn't understand that at that point in time. But second, Cain wasn't even on the right side of the conflict. He was on, uh, you know, the conflict between God and Satan. He was on the wrong side, and we'll talk about that as we go through our lesson. Well, Eve's second-born son, she named, they named, Abel. Abel in Hebrew means vanity, emptiness, vapor, breath. You know, somebody named Abel? I mean, would you name your son vanity? (laughs) Number one, you don't want him to be vain, but vanity, emptiness? But that's what they named him. That's the same word that is used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Where it says, you know, King Solomon says, vanity of vanities, life without the Lord is all vanity, isn't it? Why do they name him vanity? Well, apparently, by the time of Abel's birth, Adam and Eve had come to realize the impact of what they had done there in the garden, the impact of their sin. They now realized, or at least Eve did, the pain of childbirth. Adam realized the toil to get food from the ground. 
They both realized uh, the problem their sin had caused in their marriage relationship, I'm sure. You know, it doesn't take long to be married (laughs) to find that out. And I'm sure, too, they noticed how their sin had affected their children, the stubborn wills and the attitudes of children. However, the worst evidence of their disobedience came as they witnessed death. They'd never seen death. I'm sure they saw plants die and wither and animals die and just the decay process in nature. The wrinkles that come, you know, and the sagging jowls and all that. Well, they weren't old enough yet to notice that when they had their children, but they would. So since, since they noticed all these things, they realized that creation truly had been subject to vanity. That's what it tells us in the book of Romans. All creation is subject to vanity. So they named their second son Vanity. And it really represented their faded hope for a quick solution to the utter disaster of their sin. Well, as the two sons grew up, and probably by the time of this, when they go to the altar to present their their offerings to the Lord, they're probably in their 20s or 30s. So time has passed. The sons grew up. They each had their own interests and skills, which is natural. Abel, uh, who is mentioned first, his occupation is mentioned first, which is interesting because he was the second son, so maybe that's again a hint that he's the righteous spiritual son. But he became the first of many significant shepherds in the scripture. Shepherds were pictures of Christ, the good shepherd. So he is the first type of Christ as a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Isaac and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the 12 sons, they were all shepherds, weren't they? You know, they're all pointing, especially in the book of Genesis, all pointing in Exodus (laughs) to Christ. The sheep he raised, he did not raise for food because it wasn't until after the flood that man was allowed to eat meat. So he wasn't raising them to have lamb chops. He was raising the sheep in order to provide for sacrifices and also for clothing. Got that example from the Lord himself there in the garden. Cain, who was the firstborn son, followed after his father's footsteps, which usually firstborn sons do, do, don't they? And what, what was he? A tiller of the ground. He was a farmer, just like his dad. Now, both professions were honorable. Nothing wrong with being a farmer, nothing wrong with being a, a shepherd. And I got to thinking about how contradictory that is compared to when you go to these museums that the evolutionists design. You go in there and you see ancient man. And what is he usually portrayed as? Well, for one thing, he's a real low forehead, hunched over, and they're always hunting, aren't they? Hunting. They're hunters. Well, that's not true. The, the most ancient men we know of were farmers and shepherds. Well, in verses 3 to 5, we find that there was a specific time and a specific way to approach the Lord with an offering and apparently also a prescri- prescribed place to present the offerings. Now, you know chapters are not divinely inspired. So if you just, if you link them presenting their offerings with the the end of chapter 3, if you link those two things together, we can probably guess that the place that they likely brought those offerings was to the garden's eastern entrance. That location was, after all, a mercy seat of sorts, in that 
cherubim were stationed there on either side of the entrance into the garden, stationed there to protect, protect them from entering into the garden and physically eating the fruit off of the tree of life and then living forever in their fallen nature. So that was mercy <laughs> that the, there was that entrance that was guarded by those cherubim. And remember what it said at the end of verse 24, that they were there with the flaming spinning sword in order to keep the way, the way of the tree of life. Henceforth, the way to eternal life would be by faith, a spiritual approach, not a physical approach. Prior, it was you could just pluck a physical fruit off the tree. From here on, it's going to be a, a, a... by faith, not by fruit. But what Cain does is he tries to basically do the old way by fruit, presenting physical fruit. So there's meaning in all of that, too. We know that centuries later on, there would be another mercy seat that was also protected by two golden representations of cherubim and above which the Shekinah glory presence of the Lord hovered. He dwelt with his people above the mercy seat. And at a prescribed time of the year, which was the day of covering, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, Israel's high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle, how many times we discussed, seven times with his finger, blood upon the mercy seat. Well, the Lord... In his Shekinah glory form, which was like a pillar of cloud or fire by night, he likely met with Adam and his family after they were driven from the Holy of Holies, the Garden Temple. That's probably where he dwelt with them. They didn't walk with him any longer physically in the cool of the afternoon, but he still was present with them probably over that entrance above the cherubim. And that probably is where they set up an altar. That would be my guess. Makes a lot of sense. Well, since Abel was a keeper of sheep, the firstlings of his flock, which is what he brought, look at, let's see, verse 4, Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. So that, what he offered to the Lord would have been, the firstlings of his flock would have been his most perfect unblemished lamb. He would have brought the most perfect lamb he had. It was called, in Hebrews 11.4, we just read it, it was called a more excellent sacrifice. Why? Because it was given in faith. In faith. Now, Abel, of course, did not have the understanding that you and I are so blessed to have about Christ and his atonement work on the cross. We have our the whole Bible, so we understand that. He didn't understand that. Nonetheless, in faith, in faith, his sacrifice did look forward to Calvary and the shed blood of the innocent lamb who would die there in his place. He was just believing God and his word, and he was believing God's example when God slew is that a word? <laughs> the lamb, you know, to cover his parents. Now, this proper offering of sin, as I just said, was taught by God. Right after he gave the, the first gospel message, he killed a perfectly innocent lamb. I mean, animal. If I was to guess, I'd say it was a lamb. Maybe two lambs. I don't know. One for each of them. I'm not sure. But he killed that lamb. And as the blood was soaking into the ground, 
he used the animal skins to cover the couple's guilt-ridden nakedness. Nakedness. So what he was doing was laying down three divine rules of acceptable atonement for sin. Three divine rules, and these are important. What were they? Well, number one, I wish I had room to write them here. I did yesterday. I could write them all up there, but you'll get your notes. The first acceptable rule for atonement for sin is that it must be something God alone can provide. The animal and its blood and even its life are his provision as creator. You can work and work and work and work and work your whole life long. Can you ever produce a lamb or any kind of an animal sacrifice? No. It has to be his, his provision, not the product of man's labor. Well, after evidencing their faith in God's promise, of a coming savior, and we talked about that last time. Are Adam and Eve in heaven? Yes. They gave evidence of their faith in his word. Then after that, you know what? Adam and Eve did absolutely nothing but stand there as the Lord provided for them a sin substitute and covered them. Just like the prodigal son when he came back to his father. He didn't didn't attire himself in a robe of righteousness. His father put it on him. He could do nothing. They could do nothing. They had tried to do something to cover their sin, hadn't they? They had made fig leaf aprons. But we know those were of no effect because when the Lord came seeking them, they they still ran in, in guilt and fear of him and shame. So, number one, something God alone can provide as a sin substitute. Second, it must be the death of an innocent, innocent substitute. The animal that was slain in the garden was innocent. That poor animal had not participated in Adam's sin. Now, if you remember the Edenic covenant, which was, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. But it specifically said, on the day, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. In that day. Okay. Without God's provision... Of this innocent sin substitute, Adam and Eve would have died physically as soon as the sun started setting on that day of their sin. Now, they died instantly when they partook of the fruit, didn't they? They died spiritually the minute they sinned. But they would have, and that would not be good if they had died physically before that day ended because then they'd be lost forever because they were spiritually dead. That is why God immediately, that very day, as soon as they sinned, he came looking for Adam, and he gave them the gospel message, and then what did he do before the sunset? He covered their sins with the animal substitute. Has to be something God alone provides. Has to be the death of an innocent substitute. Third, the Lord taught Adam and Eve that a proper atonement for sin must, must, must include the shedding of blood. Now, they wouldn't have understood that, but we do. The life of the flesh is where? In the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We understand that. 
They didn't understand that. They just knew it was God's example. So there had to be the shedding of blood. And very graphically, he taught them that. because He taught them that sin results in death. Either their deaths or the death of an innocent substitute that had to shed its blood in order to cover their guilt. So Adam and Eve learned these from God, these three truths, and then they were, after they were driven from the garden, they were to teach them to their children and their grandchildren, etc. What were those three? Again, not the works of your own hands, something God himself provides, must be a living sacrifice that dies and it must shed blood did jesus christ the lamb of god meet all three of those requirements yes he did the act of offering a sacrifice that met these three criteria would evidence faith in god's promise of a savior well since there was a fixed place and a regular time at the end of days it says For the offerings to be presented, and maybe if we could go back, we'd find out it actually was on the Day of Atonement. Could could have been. God orchestrated all of this. But there was a specific place, a specific time, a specific offering. When we read this account in Genesis 4, this probably was not the first time that these two sons had done this. Probably their entire lives they had been going to the altar there at the entrance of Eden and with their parents offering the lamb. But maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe this is the first time they went without their parents. But there was something different this time. Now, since Abel was a shepherd, the family members, the other family members, likely received their animal sacrifices from him. But this time... For some reason, Cain decided to replace the normal animal sacrifice offering with fruit from his own labor, his own skills at farming. And right away, this tells us that Cain's heart was not right with God because he knew what was requested and yet deliberately and self-righteously approached the altar his way. Now, where that little seed of rebellion in Cain began, I don't really know. Maybe, just possibly, it could be traced back to his parents' initial hope that he was the promised Savior. And then their subsequent disappointment when they realized he wasn't. I don't know, as he grew up, maybe he beat Abel up all the time. You know, his younger brother kicked him around or whatever. I I don't know. And maybe they said, you're just not who we thought you were. (laughs) Why can't you be like your little goody two-shoes brother, you know? I don't know. I'm just making this up. But whatever happened, something passed through his mind. Suddenly, or this has probably been brewing, but now he's not content with doing things God's way. In Cain, we find embodied all that man religiously tries to be for the Lord apart from the Lord. You can't be for the Lord anything apart from the Lord. We're just abiding on the vine, aren't we? Anything we produce is of him. Notice he didn't bring his offering to a false god. Did he have a statue there? No, he didn't bring his offering to a false god, nor did he ignore God. 
His offering, it tells us specifically, his offering was unto the Lord. Cain was not a pagan. He was not an atheist. Cain was religious. He was a religious man. And he was religious with regard to the true God. The one and only true God. But Cain thought a little bit too much of himself because he not only put his thoughts and his ways above the Lord's, but he believed that the product of his own hands, of his own works, was sufficient to offset any deficiencies within himself and to redeem himself. He reminds me of the proud Pharisee in the temple who said basically to God, Oh, you are so fortunate to have me. I give you cumin and mint, Lord, just what you always needed. And I tithe my 10%, you know. Oh, aren't you just so glad you have me, Lord? Instead of that sorry Abel over there, you know, that dirty shepherd boy, that publican. That's who he reminds. He also reminds me, Cain reminds me of the prodigal's older son. He was the real prodigal in that story, wasn't he? The proud one. Religious. The religious works mentality exhibits no real conviction of sin. Poverty of spirit, utterly, hopelessly, helplessly, spiritually bankrupt apart from the Lord. Jesus said you have to know you're sick to desire a physician. This works mentality, no real conviction of sin. Cain really didn't think he needed to die as represented in the animal's death in his place. So his offering, his fruit offering, represented faith in himself. Like so many people today, he spurned the idea of a blood sacrifice. Perhaps it was offensive to his intellect, a rugged, bloody sacrifice, a rugged, bloody cross. You know, a lot of the hymn books even in Protestant churches, have removed the blood from the hymns, the old, the good, theologically sound hymns. They're taking the blood out. You can't do that. You cannot do that. His way seemed right to him, and it certainly seemed more sensible, and it seemed more civilized than God's bloody killing of a a living sacrifice. Now, think about that. Isn't it ironic that he would soon be responsible for the bloody killing of his own brother. Hmm. There's a lot of hypocrisy out there in the world. Those who look down their nose at Christians and say, you know, a bloody cross and how awful that is. And yet they're the ones who kill the babies in the wombs. Hypocrisy. Cain was a type, a picture of all false teachers. All false approaches to God are refer- and I'm not just saying that. It's in the book of Jude, Jude 11. He was writing about false teachers, and here's what Jude said. He said, quote, For there are certain men crept unawares, ungodly men, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Woe unto them, For they have gone in the way of Cain. Ungodly men creeping unawares. Into where? The Buddhist temples? The mosques? The Hindu shrines or whatever they call them? Where are the ungodly men creeping into? 
the church, the church, Christendom, are they out there? Oh, yeah. I just, my husband gave me a statistic he heard the other day, and it was like, I couldn't believe it. It made me sick. It was something like 80% of the pastors in America deny the divine inspiration of the scripture. Oh, my goodness. Terrible. Well, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow the Lord made it known that he accepted Abel and his offering. Look at the end of verse 4. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. See, he doesn't separate who we are from what we do. He respected Abel and the offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Now, I don't know how he made that known. Perhaps... Abel's lamb up there on the altar was just suddenly consumed by fire that came down from heaven. Maybe his Shekinah glory consumed it. But one way or another, it was gone, and Abel knew his sacrifice had been accepted, and Cain's fruit was still laying there. So he knew that his, he and his, his sacrifice had not been accepted. But instead of repenting and quickly securing from Abel a lamb that he could offer to the Lord, what happens? We find that Cain is very wroth. Look at the uh, end of verse 5. And Cain was very wroth. Have you ever been very wroth? (laughs) And when you're very wroth, what happens to your face? You have a smile on it? No, his countenance fell. The Hebrew conveys the idea that he was so boiling with anger that it affected his whole face, as it usually does. God had not conformed to to Cain's new religion of works. And he was furiously offended. How could the Lord, in his mind, Cain's mind, how could the Lord have possibly preferred his brother's blood-splattered dead lamb, laying there looking horrible, to his beautifully arranged fruit? I'm sure he, you know, I'm sure he got the most colorful fruit and grains and whatever. He maybe even arranged them very aesthetically up there on the altar. He might have even put on a costume. <laughs> Do you get my drift? The religious, you know. And he just couldn't believe that the Lord preferred that bloody lamb to his, his presentation. <laughs> if Cain could have gotten at the throat of the Lord himself, he would have done so. But instead, because he couldn't, who did he take his anger out on? His brother. Jealous anger toward his brother. Can you sit on God's lap and kick your brother? No. Do you think Cain loved God? Mm-mm. You can't say you love God and hate your brother. The one Cain should have been angry with was who? He should have been angry with himself. He knew just as well as Abel what their parents had taught them. But he had chosen to reject. He had chosen to reject that way. If he had, first of all, demonstrated faith by offering an animal sacrifice, thereby confessing that his own sin required death, and demonstrating thankful worship to God that he even allowed a a substitute to die in his place. If he had done that first, then he could have presented all the beautiful fruit he wanted to the Lord, and the Lord would have been delighted, wouldn't he? He would have. 
if he had done the, the right thing first. But you see, without the root of faith, there is no genuine fruit. You get that? Without the root of faith, there is no genuine fruit. That's like those who, you know, one day are going to, and it says many, many are going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I give you cumin (laughs) and mint? (laughs) Didn't I do this for you and that for you? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Mm. There was no, because there was no real root of faith. He never knew them. So all their fruit it wasn't genuine. In Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, if you look at those two verses, we find now another wonderful situation where the Lord displays mercy. Not only does he display mercy, but a whole lot of patience. Even though he could not accept Cain's sacrifice, yet he had compassion on Cain. He wanted Cain to gain the victory over his evil thoughts and over his emotions and to deal with sin the right way because it's not his will that any should perish. So he asks Cain three questions so that Cain would do a serious self-evaluation. Here's basically what the Lord asks him. Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast and why don't you do what is right so that you can be accepted? Why, why, why? Cain, why, why, why? Don't you do what? It's so simple. Just obey me. He had asked Adam and Eve, where, who, what? (laughs) And now he asked Cain, why, why, why? And then he warned Cain. That if he didn't do well, which tells us he did know what was right to do. If he didn't do well, sin was lying at his door, ready to devour him. There was a very, there was a very serious seed of evil lurking in the, the, at the door of Cain's heart. But it wasn't too late to deal with it. But if he didn't repent, sin would overtake him. His anger, his bitterness, his pride, his envy with his brother, those, those things and more would just totally consume him. They would devour him. It doesn't take long for resentment and jealousy to fester bitterness, to fester in a person so that he soon finds himself in the grip of a power far greater than he can handle without the Lord. And he will do things he never, ever thought he would do. We see that happening in our world today abundantly, don't we? I just cannot believe how men are quickly waxing more and more evil. Um, A week doesn't even go by when we don't hear of something. Well, Cain did not respond to God's why, why, why questions. And say a word about him. Apparently, he still believed his way was better than God's. He refused to be the master of sin. So guess what happened? Sin mastered him. He would not allow himself to be mastered by God. So he became enslaved by the devil. You see how little time Satan wasted in his conflict, his enmity against the woman's seed? 
He didn't. He just struck out almost immediately, and he succeeded in corrupting her firstborn son. And he was about to use that firstborn son to murder the secondborn son, the one he was really after, because he sensed that he was the righteous one. So he's already at work trying to prevent the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Savior. Did Satan know who the Savior would be? He sure did. The one who cast him out of heaven, the second person of the triune Godhead. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said Satan was the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. So who is behind the murder of Abel? Who's the real one behind it? Satan. Satan. By lying to Eve, Satan had brought death to the entire world. Now his spiritual child, Cain, his first spiritual child, he lost Adam and Eve, but his first spiritual child was doing exactly the same thing. Somehow or another, Cain deceived his brother. He enticed his brother to go with him to a field probably to the shepherd's field. Maybe he told Abel that he wanted to purchase from him a lamb or trade some of his fruit for a lamb so that he might offer an acceptable sacrifice. But whatever happened, the evil in Cain's heart turned to murder in his hands because what did he do? Got his brother out there in the field. Nobody else was around. He murdered him. He murdered him. Now, whether he lied to Abel or not, I don't know to get him out in that field, but I do know he lied to himself. Cain lied to himself thinking he could murder his brother and get away with it. He sure didn't understand the omniscience of God. Thought he could get away with it? Furthermore, he lied to God. He lied to God because in response to God's question, where is Abel thy brother? What did Cain say? I don't know. I don't know. That's a lie. That's an outright lie. Now, Adam and Eve had played the blame shift game. You know that game? Uh, but they hadn't lied directly to God. But Cain did. He lied right to God. And then he tried to, he tried to cover a deliberate murder with a deliberate lie. But he made matters even worse then by what he said next. His brash, disrespectful, sarcastic words to God. What did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, unfortunately, that horrific, sarcastic question stands forever as the first recorded human question in the scripture. Isn't that awful? Well, you talk about demonstrating the depravity of the human heart. There it is. Am I my brother's keeper? And I got to thinking about the first questions. The very first question in the Bible was by Satan. Yea, hath God said. Is he still not doing that today, trying to get Adam's man to doubt God's word? Yeah, you can't really believe that. Hath God really said. Then the first uh, question of God. Look at the contrast. Where are you, Adam? Isn't he still asking that? Of all the people of the world, where are you? Where are you in your relationship with me? And then what's the first question of man? Am I my brother's keeper? Isn't that terrible? 
Ugh. Well, that's what it is, recorded forever in the word of God. So his question not only denotes depravity, but it, it was spoken in the highest degree of sarcasm and disdain for the Lord himself. It also gave a reflection of the total lack of feeling for any other human being. Isn't that what we see in the world today? Are we to be our brother's keepers? Yes, we are. We are. But most don't care. I mean, everybody's getting so callous about human life. He didn't, he didn't even have any feeling that he had just killed his brother. Did he have any concern about how his parents were going to feel when they found out that their son was dead? His rhetorical question, because he didn't really expect an answer, was that of a callous, self-centered man. Indeed, he was the spiritual seed of the serpent. Well, the Lord's earlier warning to Cain came to pass. Sin had desired to have him, and guess what? It did. It got him. He had murdered, not just a stranger, which would be bad enough, but he murdered his own flesh and blood brother. Worse, it appears to have been premeditated murder. He purposely got him out there in the field to do it. Furthermore, he did his heinous deed after having gone to the altar to worship God. <laughs> be like after church, go out and kill somebody. Or while they're in church, kill somebody. Mm. Well, Genesis 4.10, the Lord revealed his omniscience to Cain. He says, what hast thou done? As if he didn't know, because he tells him in the next sentence, the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Now, this is the first appearance of the word blood in the Bible. Genesis 4.10. Blood is, in Hebrew, the word D-A-M. Damn. You're damned if you don't have the blood, if you're not covered with the blood. <laughs> That's one way to remember it. Of course, you spell damn, D-A-M-N, right? Yeah. But the plural of damn in Hebrew is with an I-M ending, and that's what you have here in Genesis 4.10. So it's telling us that Abel's blood was shed. Lots of blood, plural drops of blood was shed. So he wasn't choked to death. It was a violent death, lots of blood. How totally foolish for Cain or for any man to think that they can hide their sin from God. Can't hide our sin. He sees it all, doesn't he? The Lord not only had witnessed Cain's sin, but he heard Abel's cry for justice. Now, Abel never said a word. Not a word. We don't have one single word recorded from the mouth of Abel in the scripture. And yet, he was a prophet. He is a prophet. You know why? Because he being dead yet speaketh. Remember we read that in Hebrews 12, 24? He being dead yet speaketh. His blood is still crying out. For what? Revenge. For vengeance. The righteous blood of Abel along with the blood of all of those who have been martyred for righteousness sake screams from the ground for God's justice. God's justice. That blood is not screaming out for man's justice, man's vengeance, because that quickly turns into a vicious cycle. You don't want man seeking vengeance because pretty soon you'll have anarchy and that'll turn to civil war and revolution, etc. It just gets worse and worse. But the blood of Abel and all persecuted and martyred saints cries out for God's justice. God said vengeance is whose? Mine. 
One day, there will be justice served for that horrible guy the other day that killed all those innocent people, children. Horrible, horrible. Just makes me sick. One family of eight people. There will be justice at the great white throne judgment. You know, they said he was an atheist. I got news. He's not an atheist anymore. Mm -mm. Well, isn't it interesting that Cain, whose man-made religion was too dignified to slay a lamb and to shed its blood angrily and quickly killed his own brother? Isn't that the way of so many false religions? <laughs> Are they not characterized by force and persecution and martyrdom for all those who stand like Abel for righteousness, for the truth of God? Before his false religion was even a day old, it had succeeded in producing the very first martyr. Well, the Lord then, verses 10 and 12, declared a curse on Cain. Cain had defiled the ground with his brother's blood. Henceforth, the ground would not perform for him at all. His occupation was as a farmer, and his occupation was now doomed. I mean, the fruit of his hands had been his pride, but that arena of his pride would no longer yield its strength to him. His father, the ground had been cursed, and he'd have to go out, sweat, pull weeds, and that sort of thing. But he, the ground would produce. But for Cain, it don't, didn't matter how hard he worked with his hands and labored. No, the ground would yield not its strength at all to him. So he was cursed. He was forced to wander from soil to soil to soil, but his crops would fail no matter what he tried to do. He was cursed to be a fugitive and a wanderer, a vagabond. He would not find rest or peace. Such is the way of Cain. The way of Cain, the way of false religion, just vanity. Actually, I think that the parents got the names wrong. <laughs> Because Cain was the, the one whose life was vanity, while Abel was the man Eve really got from Yahweh. He was not the Messiah, but, he, but at the moment of his physical death, his eternal soul went straight to paradise. Which was occupied first, the paradise section of Hades or the Hades section of Hades? Which was occupied first? The paradise. In Christ, he always has the preeminence. There was a soul in paradise before ever there was one in Hades. He was the first martyr, and therefore the first person, the, well, he was the first human to pass through the gates of death to paradise. Not the third heaven, but paradise, where he would wait for the one in whom he had put his faith, the Savior. And when he rose from the death, from the dead well even while he was still in the ground where did jesus go not his body but he went to paradise and he set captivity free all those in paradise all the old testament saints from abel down to john the baptist or whoever was the last one and he took them up into god's presence in the third heaven because now they weren't just covered temporarily from their sin they were cleansed once for all and they could be in God's presence. So when Abel died, and I also got to thinking about this, for the very first time, the holy angels had their opportunity to minister to man. They are ministering spirits for us. 
So now they had their first opportunity to escort a human soul to the place where he would await the resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the only fruit that Cain's false religion produced, brought him, was the fruit of fear. His response to God's curse on him, look at verse 13, was my punishment is greater than I can bear. Ah, my punishment, shouldn't he have said my guilt is greater than I can bear? No, he's so self-centered, all he's thinking about is his punishment. He was afraid, and he goes on to talk about it, he's afraid that others would slay him the way he had slain his brother. So his response gives absolutely no evidence of repentance, Nope. Regret? Remorse? Not even that. I mean, even Judas Iscariot had remorse, and he went out and hung himself, didn't he? But we, saw, we see none of that here. He doesn't say my guilt is greater than I can. His only concern is that his punishment was his punishment, not his sin. And he feared man more than he feared God. His complaint really is an accusation that God's punishment is too harsh, too unfair, isn't that what we hear from people all the time? Yeah. Oh, uh, how could God send people to hell? Well, he didn't make hell for them anyway. He made it for devil and fallen angels. But So he's complaining that his punishment is too harsh. Well, then the amazing thing is that God, again, demonstrates mercy toward Cain. He puts on him a mark, which in Hebrew is the word sign. He puts a sign on him. And the sign is for his protection. It served as a warning to anyone who might even think about taking vengeance on Cain for what he had done to Abel. Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters, not just the ones we know about, the three names we know about. They had many sons and daughters. So by this time, there's, there's a lot of relatives <laughs> in the world. And he's afraid somebody will seek vengeance and kill him. So to ensure that no one did, he puts a, uh, a sign on Cain, and you can go online and find the most crazy things about what that sign is. Do you know that some even say that a horn popped out of his head, like a unicorn? <laughs> I, I just cannot. You have to be so careful when you go online. <laughs> it, it was, we don't know what the sign was. Some, some said it was the color of the skin. Some said that it was uh, a big nose. <laughs> All of a sudden, his nose got big. I mean, just ridiculous things. But the, we don't know what the sign was, but he, he followed up the sign of protecting Cain with a, a, a warning that anyone who dared to kill Cain, God would take sevenfold vengeance on that person. So the ground curse was God's means of punishing Cain. But the sign on him was God's means of protecting him. Why didn't he just kill Cain on the spot? He's given, yeah, grace. Maybe along the way he'll repent, giving him more time to repent. Also, he's using him, because he's going to wander all over the place, he's using him as a warning to the rest of humanity not to murder and not to take vengeance. And not to follow in the way of Cain. Because what happened to him can happen to you. So we find that Cain's false religion brought him nothing but fear and resentment and banishment. And the vanity of living 
a purposeless life, wandering around as a fugitive. He went out from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 16. That's sad. He went out from the presence of the Lord, which tells me, because the Lord is omnipresent, how could he have gone out from the presence of the Lord? I think he went out from the presence of the Shekinah glory of the Lord there at the eastern gate. of. He went out from that presence. And where did he dwell? Where did he go to dwell? In the land of Nod. Well, how could he land, live in one place when he was supposed to be a fugitive and a vagabond? How could he live in Nod? <laughs> because Nod means wandering. He went on to live wandering. Now, he did have a son named Enoch, and he named the, he built a city. He and his wife built a city named Enoch after their son, but it, the technical word says he began to build it, but he wasn't allowed to finish it he had, because he had a curse on him. He would keep wandering all of his life. He eventually, you know, Genesis 4, there, there's some verses that present his descendants and how they all began, called the Canaanites, They began a world system apart from God. And unless one of Noah's three daughter-in-laws was a descendant of Cain, which I doubt because I think his sons were righteous, like Noah, so they probably married saved girls. But that would be the only hope is one of those daughter-in-laws was his descendant. Otherwise, he left no posterity behind. All the Canaanites were wiped out in the flood. So he left nothing, but he was an apostate. His life was vanity, wasn't it? Emptiness. He deliberately turned his back on God. He left nothing behind of any lasting value except a horrible testimony in the word of God. That is the way of false religions. That is the way of Cain. Well, since this is not a study on the book of Genesis, (laughs) no, I'm tricking you. (laughs) This is a study on Old Testament Christology. I want to finish up by looking at, for Christ in this account. Now, this is, account, this is the superficial level of the story that you've heard ever since you were in Sunday school as a little kid. If you went to church, you've heard the story of Cain and Abel, okay? Well, there's a deeper level. Let's look for Christ. We've already mentioned some of the ways that Abel is a picture of Christ, but let's review them. Abel was the first shepherd in the Bible, which, of course, immediately points to the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus. As a shepherd, Abel presented unto God the firstlings of his flock, a lamb, the best, perfect. As a shepherd, Jesus presented to God himself (laughs) the lamb. He is the lamb of God, and he is perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. In bringing his offering for sin, Abel demonstrated obedience to God's word. In presenting himself as this offering for sin, Jesus, was he obedient to God? Oh, absolutely. In presenting his offering, Abel obtained witness that he was righteous. We read that in Hebrews 11.4. While presenting himself on the cross... As an offering to God, Christ also obtained witness that he was righteous. And it came from the strangest source. A Roman centurion said, surely this was a righteous man. Abel was the first one to die for righteousness sake. Jesus, of course, died for righteousness sake. His light was too bright 
and they wanted to put it out, those in darkness. He did always those things that pleased his father. Abel's soul was the first fruit of paradise. Jesus' body was the first fruit of paradise in the third heaven. God had respect unto Abel and to his offering. It was what? An excellent sacrifice. The offering of Christ was excellent, even exceeding above Abel's. It was a sweet-smelling savor to his father. God's acceptance of Christ's offering was proven by what? His resurrection, his ascension into heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Who saw him there? Who saw him seated at the right hand? Who? Stephen. Well, later John. Yeah, Stephen was the first one to see him actually seated there. Well, he was standing up, wasn't he? He was actually standing up, giving Stephen a standing ovation. Now, it was out of envy that Cain slew his brother. It was out of envy that Jesus was hated by his brethren, the Jews, the religious leaders. Cain hated his brother for no just cause. Jesus was hated by his brethren without a just cause. Abel, not a word, like a lamb, led to the slaughter, didn't speak a word. He might have, but nothing's recorded. Just like Jesus, as a lamb, went to the slaughter. Abel, the younger brother, was killed by the elder brother, Cain. Christ, the head of the younger people, the church, was killed by the elder people, Israel. Abel met a violent death by the hands of his brother. Many drops of blood were shed. Jesus also shed much blood, violent death, the most violent death man has ever come up with. He was killed by wicked hands of his own brothers, it says in Acts, the house of Israel. Both Abel and Jesus were innocent, although Jesus was sinless. And yet they were murdered. But murder did not silence either one of them. Murder did not silence Abel, just as it did not silence Jesus. By the way, Abel is not only a shepherd, he's a prophet, shepherd and a prophet. In a way, he's kind of a priest presenting his altar, his uh, offering too. The blood of Abel cries out, as does the blood of Christ. But, but, Christ's blood speaks of better things than that of Abel's. Remember we read that, Hebrews 24, uh, 12, 24. His blood, Christ's blood, speaks of better things than that of Abel. You see, the precious blood of Jesus Christ speaks with greater power and greater excellency than the blood of Abel because Abel's blood cried out for what? Vengeance and justice. But what does Christ's blood cry out for? You remember what he said when they started to crucify him? Father, forgive them. His blood cries out for forgiveness and mercy. And it almost makes me cry thinking of it. Now, as Abel served as a prophetic type of Christ, Cain, Cain served as a prophetic picture of the blood 
brethren of Christ who were responsible for his death. And when I say that, I am speaking about the religious crowd, the religious rulers, Caiaphas and Annas and the Sadducees and the, the, the wicked Pharisees of the Sanhedrin council. Now, some of those guys did get saved, but most of them did not. So I'm speaking about them. And here's the comparison. Cain and the religious crowds, that the religious crowd that put Jesus to death. Cain refused the required lamb, which was the offering for sin that God's grace provided. Likewise, the Jews refused the lamb of God, the offering for sin that God provided. Cain brought an offering of his own choice. Just as the Jews, we are told, sought to establish their own righteousness. Cain's offering was rejected by the Lord, just as God had no respect for the works of the Jews. Cain, being the firstborn son, had the God-given privilege to rule over his brother. If Israel had obeyed God in his commandments and statutes, and accepted his Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, she would have been the head of the nations. But as Cain forfeited his privilege as the firstborn son, so did Israel's leaders cause the nation to forfeit her place and her privilege. Envious of Abel, Cain killed his brother, And God told him that Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. He lied. He lied. He, it was premeditated murder. Well, Israel's envious religious rulers had Christ crucified. Didn't they lie to do that? They even lied after he was dead. And after he rose, they paid the soldiers to lie about things. And it was premeditated. They had planned his death all along. The only only thing they didn't want was for him to die in the Passover. Isn't that hilarious? But everything else they planned, you know, but not the Passover. (laughs) But his blood, and and I was talking about the blood of Abel crying out. Remember what the Jews said? Can you believe this? They said this? His blood, yes, be on us and our children. Why don't you just keep it to yourselves, you guys, not your children. Cain Cain was of the wicked one. 1 John 3, 12, Cain was of the wicked one. What did Jesus say to the religious rulers of Israel? Ye are of your father, the devil. Because Cain shed his brother's blood, God's curse fell on him. Because Israel rejected and killed her prophets and even her own Messiah, God has made Israel a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, it says in Jeremiah. Part of Cain's punishment involved the ground becoming barren to him. Part of the uh, curse of God on Israel was the barrenness, the desolation of the land of Israel. Cain said that his punishment was greater than he could bear. Israel's punishment, I would say, if I was speaking for her, was certainly, certainly been greater than she could bear. And it certainly will be during the great tribulation, more than she can bear. But fortunately, it will finally cause, cause her to fall on her knees before the Lord when he returns. And so all Israel shall be saved. Unlike Cain, <laughs> corporately she will be saved because Christ's 
blood is more excellent and it's about forgiveness and mercy. Now, because of his sin, Cain was driven out of his homeland and he became a wanderer in the earth. Because of their sin of crucifying the Messiah, the Jews have been driven back from 70 AD from the promised land and scattered where? All over the nations of the earth. While their land for some 2,000 years was desolate. A mark of identification was divinely placed on Cain so that he would not be eliminated by his enemies. The Jews have some kind of a mysterious divine mark on them. No horn in your The nose, well, I got that too. <laughs> but somehow or another, God has marked them so that they would pre- be preserved as a people throughout their history. The supernatural preservation of the scattered people of Israel has indeed been a sign to the entire world that God exists. In the yet future great tribulation, there will be 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, that will be divinely marked in some way because they will be preserved from being martyred by the Antichrist. God declared he would pay a sevenfold vengeance on any who slew Cain. Hmm. Remember Genesis 12, 3, the Abrahamic covenant? I will bless them that bless Israel. That's still in the Bible, isn't it? Bless them that bless Israel and what? Curse them. Sevenfold. Sevenfold. And history has proven that to be true. Well, the story of the two brothers did not end with the good one murdered and the bad one punished by wandering in disgrace. Adam and Eve must have wondered how the seed of the woman could save mankind when one son was dead and the other had killed him. I mean, what kind of hope (laughs) was that for being delivered from Satan's grip? That looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? But God, in his grace, gave them another son. Another son, we gave many, but another one specifically that we know about who was given a name, and what was his name? Seth. He would be God's means of delivering his fulfillment to the Proto-Evangelium. Through Seth would come the promised Savior. There was a third brother. His name, Seth, means substitute. Technically, it means one raised up in the place of. Raised up in the place of Abel, the righteous son. He was the Lord's replacement, godly seed. Now, according to the genealogy of Christ presented to us in Luke chapter 3, Noah and everyone who lived after the flood, all descendants of Noah, were from Seth. So everyone received their life, you and I, everyone in this room, we have received our life from Seth. Seth. So the firstborn son, Cain, he represents the first birth, the physical birth, the flesh birth. Abel, the secondborn son, obviously represents the spiritual birth, born again. Seth represents the one who made that possible, Christ, 
who came through, the one who gave life to all, the resurrected life in Christ. One day we'll have the divine nature of Christ. We already have that, actually. So Abel represented the shepherd, Jesus, who died to redeem us from the penalty of sin and from sin itself. Cain represented the self-righteous religious leaders responsible for the shepherd's death. And Seth represented the resurrected woman's seed, Christ, who would bring life to all. Let's pray. Would you bow with me? Father, Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for the hunger I see in these women's eyes. And for the lights that go off, oh, that just is so satisfying and my heart is burning. Grant to us, I would ask, grant to each of us the grace to deal with matters that so many of us deal with. Jealousies, foolish jealousies, resentment, bitterness, maybe an unforgiving spirit, hatred, whatever. Because the Lord Jesus has provided the way for us to overcome such emotions that are really tools of the devil who is crouching at the door waiting to devour all men before they belong to you and then to destroy even the testimonies of those who have come to you. So help us to flee temptation to sin and, and to say, get thee behind me, Satan. I will not think like that. I will not have harbor that bitterness and that jealousy and all that silly stuff. Help us, Father, to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as you, Father, for Christ's sake, have forgiven us. Help, help us to be um, loving, to, to say, yes, I am my brother's keeper. Help us to love one another, to pray for those who hurt us and despitefully use us. In other words, we are asking that you would help us to have the mind of Christ in a world full of canes. Now, I ask that you would give every one of us a wonderful three weeks of um, rest, and may we remember to be thankful and for everything, every day of the year, but particularly as we get together with maybe lost relatives, to show them how much we love you and are so thankful for you. And until we meet again, use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.